Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Chapter 8 of The Adventures of Sally This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Adventures of Sally by P. G. Woodhouse Chapter 8 Reappearance of Mr. Carmyle and Ginger 1. When Sally left Detroit on the following Saturday, accompanied by Fillmore, who was returning to the metropolis for a few days, in order to secure offices and generally make his presence felt along Broadway, her spirits had completely recovered. She felt guiltily that she had been fanciful, even morbid. Naturally men wanted to get on in the world. It was their job. She told herself that she was bound up with Gerald's success, and that the last thing of which she ought to complain was the energy he put into efforts of which she, as well as he, would reap the reward." To this happier frame of mind the excitement of the last few days had contributed. Detroit, that city of amiable audiences, had liked the primrose way. The theatre, in fulfilment of Teddy's prophecy, had been allowed to open on the Tuesday, and a full house, hungry for entertainment after its enforced abstinence, had welcomed the play wholeheartedly. The papers, not always in agreement with the applause of a first-night audience, had on this occasion endorsed the verdict, with agreeable unanimity hailing Gerald as the coming author and Elsa Doland as the coming star. There had even been a brief mention of Fillmore as the coming manager. But there is always some trifle that jars in our greatest moments, and Fillmore's triumph had almost been spoilt by the fact that the only notice taken of Gladys Winch was by the critic who printed her name, spelt Wunch, in the list of those whom the cast also included. "'One of the greatest character actresses on the stage,' said Fillmore bitterly, talking over this outrage with Sally on the morning after the production. From this blow, however, his buoyant nature had soon enabled him to rally. Life contained so much that was bright that it would have been churlish to concentrate the attention on the one dark spot.' Business had been excellent all through the week. Elsa Doland had got better at every performance. The receipt of a long and agitated telegram from Mr. Cracknell, pleading to be allowed to buy the piece back, the passage of time having apparently softened Miss Hobson, was a pleasant incident. And, best of all, the great Ike Schumann, 
who owned half the theatres in New York, and had been in Detroit superintending one of his musical productions, had looked in one evening and stamped the primrose way with the seal of his approval. As Fillmore sat opposite Sally on the train, he radiated contentment and importance. "'Yes, do,' said Sally, breaking a long silence. Fillmore awoke from happy dreams. "'Eh?' "'I said, yes, do. I think you owe it to your position.' "'Do what?' "'Buy a fur coat. Wasn't that what you were meditating about?' "'Don't be a chump,' said Fillmore, blushing nevertheless. It was true that, once or twice during the past week, he had toyed negligently, as Mr. Bunbury would have said, with the notion, and why not, a fellow must keep warm.' "'With an astrakhan collar,' insisted Sally. "'As a matter of fact,' said Fillmore loftily, his great soul ill-attuned to this badinage, "'what I was really thinking about at the moment was something Ike said.' "'Ike? Ike Schumann. He's on the train. I met him just now.' "'We call him Ike?' "'Of course I call him Ike,' said Fillmore heatedly. "'Everyone calls him Ike.' "'He wears a fur coat,' Sally murmured. Fillmore registered annoyance. "'I wish you wouldn't keep on harping on that damned coat. And anyway, why shouldn't I have a fur coat?' "'Phil, how can you be so brutal as to suggest that I ever said you shouldn't? Why, I'm one of the strongest supporters of the fur coat, with big cuffs, and you must roll up Fifth Avenue in your car, and I'll point and say, "'That's my brother.' "'Your brother? No.' "'He is, really.' "'You're joking. Why, that's the great Fillmore Nicholas. "'I know, but he really is my brother, and I was with him when he bought that coat.' "'Do leave off about the coat.' "'And it isn't only the coat, I shall say. It's what's underneath, tucked away inside that mass of fur, dodging about behind that dollar cigar, is one to whom we point with pride.' Fillmore looked coldly at his watch. I've got to go and see Ike Schumann. We are in hourly consultation with Ike. He wants to see me about the show. He suggests putting it into Chicago before opening in New York. Oh, no! cried Sally, dismayed. Why not? Sally recovered herself. Identifying Gerald so closely with his play, she had supposed for a moment that if the piece opened in Chicago— it would mean a further prolonged separation from him. But of course there would be no need, she realized, for him to stay with the company, after the first day or two. "'You're thinking that we ought to have a New York reputation before tackling Chicago. There's a lot to be said for that. Still, it works both ways. A Chicago run would help us in New York. Well, I'll have to think it over,' said Fillmore importantly. "'I'll have to think it over.' He mused, with drawn brows. "'All wrong,' said Sally. "'Eh?' "'Not a bit like it. The lips should be compressed, and the forefinger of the right hand laid in a careworn way against the right temple. You've a lot to learn, Phil.' "'Oh, stop it!' "'Fillmore Nicholas,' said Sally, "'if you knew what pain it gives me to josh my only brother, you'd be sorry for me. But you know it's for your good.' Now run along and put Ike out of his misery. I know he's waiting for you with his watch out. You do think he'll come, Miss Nicholas. 
were his last words to me as he stepped on the train, and, oh, Phil, the yearning in his voice. "'Why, of course he will, Mr. Schumann,' I said. "'For all his exalted position, my brother is kindliness itself. Of course he'll come.' "'If I could only think so,' he said, with a gulp, "'if I could only think so.' "'But you know what these managers are. "'A thousand calls on their time. "'They get brooding on their fur coats and forget everything else. "'Have no fear, Mr. Schumann,' I said. "'Fillmore Nicholas is a man of his word.' "'She would have been willing, "'for she was a girl who never believed in sparing herself "'where it was a question of entertaining her nearest and dearest, "'to continue the dialogue, "'but Fillmore was already moving down the car, "'his rigid back a silent protest against sisterly levity.' Sally watched him disappear, then picked up a magazine, and began to read. She had just finished tracking a story of gripping interest, through a jungle of advertisements, only to find that it was in two parts, of which the one she was reading was the first, when a voice spoke. "'How do you do, Miss Nicholas?' Into the seat before her, recently released from the weight of the coming manager, Bruce Carmyle, of all people in the world, insinuated himself with that well-bred air of deferential restraint which never left him. 2. Sally was considerably startled. Everybody travels nowadays, of course, and there is nothing really remarkable in finding a man in America whom you had supposed to be in Europe, but nevertheless she was conscious of a dream-like sensation, as though the clock had been turned back and a chapter of her life reopened which she had thought closed for ever. "'Mr. Carmyle!' she cried. If Sally had been constantly in Bruce Carmyle's thoughts, since they had parted on the Paris Express, Mr. Carmyle had been very little in Sally's, so little indeed that she had had to search her memory for a moment before she identified him. "'We're always meeting on trains, aren't we?' she went on, her composure returning. "'I never expected to see you in America.' I came over. Sally was tempted to reply that she gathered that, but a sudden embarrassment curbed her tongue. She had just remembered that at their last meeting she had been abominably rude to this man. She was never rude to anyone without subsequent remorse. She contented herself with a tame, yes. Yes, said Mr. Carmyle, it is a good many years since I have taken a real holiday. My doctor seemed to think I was a trifle run down. It seemed a good opportunity to visit America. "'Everybody,' said Mr. Carmyle oracularly, endeavouring, as he had often done since his ship had left England, to persuade himself that his object in making the trip had not been merely to renew his acquaintance with Sally. "'Everybody ought to visit America at least once. It is part of one's education.' "'And what are your impressions of our glorious country?' said Sally, rallying. Mr. Carmyle seemed glad of the opportunity of lecturing on an impersonal subject. He, too, though his face had shown no trace of it, had been embarrassed in the opening stages of the conversation. The sound of his voice restored him. "'I have been visiting Chicago,' he said, after a brief travelogue. "'Oh! A wonderful city!' "'I've never seen it. I've come from Detroit.' "'Yes, I heard you were in Detroit.' Sally's eyes opened. "'You heard I was in Detroit? Good gracious! How?' "'I, uh, 
called at your New York address and made inquiries, said Mr. Carmyle, a little awkwardly. But how did you know where I lived? My cousin, er, Lancelot, told me. Sally was silent for a moment. She had much the same feeling that comes to the man in the detective story who realizes that he is being shadowed. Even if this almost complete stranger had not actually come to America in direct pursuit of her, there was no disguising the fact that he evidently found her an object of considerable interest. It was a compliment, but Sally was not at all sure that she liked it. Bruce Carmyle meant nothing to her, and it was rather disturbing to find that she was apparently of great importance to him. She seized on the mention of Ginger as a lever for diverting the conversation from its present too intimate course. "'How is Mr. Kemp?' she asked. Mr. Carmyle's dark face seemed to become a trifle darker. "'We have had no news of him,' he said shortly. "'No news? How do you mean? You speak as though he had disappeared.' "'He has disappeared.' "'Good heavens! When?' 